0: are certain things that we do as religious people, as church people, as God's people, and and we can can label them and give them a little box and we can check those things off. These are the things that we do. I think Saul is that kind of person. David, not so much. And so let's think a little bit about the difference between King Saul and King David. First of all, we think about King Saul. Saul's the first king of Israel. Uh, You'll remember that the time of the judges had passed, which is Bible history real quick for a moment. Uh, The time of the judges had passed, and the people finally come to the point, they don't like Samuel's sons, uh, who might be judges after Samuel, they don't like Samuel's sons, they're abusive, they misuse the people, They, they, they misuse their position of authority, and so they call out to Samuel, give us a king so that we can be like all the nations. Of course, there's a bit of of dishonesty in their their request when they say that they don't really trust Samuel's sons. It's really that they want to be like everybody else. Give us a king so we can be like everybody else. Samuel feels dejected by that, but God says, listen, warn them about what they're getting themselves into, but go ahead and give them what they're asking for. It's not good for them, but if they're insisting on it, go ahead and give it to them. So they select Saul, or God selects Saul. He gives them a good king, even though having a king wasn't good for them. But he does give them a good king. So if there's King Saul. Well, there's a picture of King Saul or somebody's thoughts of what King Saul is. Um, but God takes the kingdom away from Saul and gives it to someone else. Gives it to David. Gives it to his servant, right? And we'll look at this verse in just a moment, but that verse in, what is it, First Corinthians? Uh, First 1 First, uh, First Samuel 13 uh, that David is a man after God's own heart. Right? David's a man after God's own heart. What does that mean? That seems to be the distinction between Saul and David. What does that mean that he's a man after God's own heart? So we'll, we'll look at that. So what does it, what, what is it that makes Saul such a bad guy? You, you saw the picture of him, right? He didn't look like a very nice guy. What, what, what makes Saul such a bad guy? I don't know if you'll be able to see these things, but I'll, I'll read them off to you. Or at least in contrast to David. What makes David so good and Saul so bad? Somebody says, well, he just is, right? He's the bad guy. Didn't you see him? He was wearing the black hat. He's a bad guy. That's why Saul's so bad. He just is. And David's the good guy because the Bible tells us that he's the good guy. He's the man after God's own heart. That's all you need to know. Saul's the bad guy. David's the good guy. I don't know if any of you have ever seen these things. I don't remember if it was uh, truth in life. Uh, You have to think back a long time. I remember going to Bible class when I was a little boy. And uh, we were using the truth in life series or the walking in life series. But they had these visual aids that you could stretch out along the walls couldn't get a picture of that but Charlie found me this one and uh, this this one just has the the, uh, King Saul, King David and King Solomon but I remember truth and like they had this whole timeline of all of the people, I, I remember particularly the kings of Israel and Judah but it stretched all the way back to Adam and it would go all the way up into the apostles but you knew the good kings from the bad kings because the good kings smiled and the bad kings frowned and I wonder is that the difference between King Saul and King David? When you go and you look at those, those visual aids, King Saul's frowning and King David's smiling, and so that must mean that one's good and one's bad. What is it? What is it that makes Saul such a bad guy? What is it that makes David such a good guy? Maybe it's just our bias. Maybe it's because we just we just we just feel that way. We just feel like he's a good guy. We just feel like We would would get along with David. We would just get along with David. And Saul, he's a grumpy guy. He's mean. Uh, uh, We we just just wouldn't like people like Saul. I, I, I don't know if that's really the case. We might get along better with Saul than we would with David. What makes David so good and Saul so bad? Well. Saul does check all the boxes for a good guy, for a good king. Look at this verse with me. Go over to the book of 1 Samuel. This is where the people meet Saul. Saul is being introduced to us. I'm trying out a new Bible. I usually use the New American Standard, the little New Testament that I've got. That's what I'll be reading out of. But this Old Testament, this is a Christian Standard Bible. Uh, I'm not sure that I like it. But... uh, I'm going to use this today. This is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9. This is where we're introduced to Saul. And just think about the way that he's described. Think about what it is that you would want. If you want a king, we want a king to be like all the nations. Who do you want in charge? Uh, When I was a boy, I liked Transformers. My son, when he was a boy, he liked Transformers. And the leader of the Transformers is Optimus Prime. And I have to run into a woman who told me that when she was a little girl, she had a crush on Optimus Prime. Because he's big and strong, authoritative, and he does have a magnificent voice. Well, think about Saul for just a moment. This is 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 2. 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 2. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he, And he stood head taller than anyone else. What is it about Saul that makes him so kingly? You know what it is, right? You know what it is. What is it that the women always say that they want? Tall, dark, and handsome, right? Tall, dark, and handsome. What do you think King Saul was? Tall, dark, and handsome. Yeah, yeah, he looks like a king. Chapter 10 and verse 24. Chapter 10 and verse 24. It says, uh, Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the one the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among the entire population. If we're going to find a king, he looks like a king. If we're going to follow somebody into battle, that's the guy I want to follow. Yeah, he looks like a king, but I'll tell you what, he doesn't just look the part, he acts the part. He is a good leader. He is a good leader. Read on with me. This is over again in chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 5. Just then, so, oh, this is this is where the men of Jabesh Gilead are being assaulted. And it's really interesting, the context that leads up to this. So the men of Jabesh Gilead have been attacked, and... Uh, they're they're going to surrender unless unless somebody from Israel will come and help them, and so they said, let's let's send out let's send out messengers and see if somebody will come and deliver us. And the enemies let them. The enemies let them. Think about that for just a moment. Why, if you were besieging a city, they're ready to surrender, you're going to win. Why would you let them send out requests for help? I would suggest that the enemies are not concerned that they're going to lose. Either that or they're not concerned anybody's going to come and help you. We're going to win. Nobody's going to bother with you. Nobody's going to care about you. They're going to let you lose. They're going to let you be defeated. Go ahead. Send out all the requests that you want. We'll see what happens. So they send out requests, and Saul answers. So Saul's, here he is. He's King Saul, and what's he doing? What is he doing? He's come in from the fields behind the oxen. Here he is. He's a king, but he's still a servant. He's been out with the oxen. What's the matter with the people? Why are they weeping? Saul inquired, and they repeated to him the words of the men of Jabesh. When Saul heard these words the spirit of God suddenly came powerfully upon him and his anger burned furiously he took them uh, he took the team of oxen cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the whole territory of Israel by messengers and he said This is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not march behind Saul and Samuel as a result the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they went out united He doesn't just look like a king, tall, dark, and handsome. He acts like a king. He takes charge. He leads. And they're successful. Now, some people might say, well, then why why is it then when uh, Goliath and the Philistines challenge Israel, why is it that Saul is hiding in his tent, uh, who really is the champion? Remember, he's tall. He's taller than all of the other Israelites. And so he, he is the champion why doesn't he go out and face the champion of the Philistines? You know, is he, is he weak? Does he not really have faith? I, again, I would make the case that, that that I don't think is necessarily the so. Over in chapter 14, we read about his son Jonathan. Jonathan goes up and besieges the Philistine garrison, garrison just with himself and his armor bearer. And Jonathan makes this comment, Nothing can keep the Lord from saving, whether by few or many. Where do you suppose Jonathan got that kind of faith? Jonathan says God can deliver whether there's a few of us or many of us. Where do you suppose Jonathan got that kind of faith? I think that that's at least an argument. I don't know it's decisive, but it's at least an argument that Saul taught his son that God can deliver (coughs) by few or by many business with uh, Goliath I'm not saying it's right but sometimes as a man lives or a woman lives as people live and they experience life and they develop scars you just become jaded. if I was to guess that would be my guess as to Saul at the time with, uh, with uh, the Philistines and he gives credit to God I mean, he is a good guy this Saul he looks like a leader, he acts like a leader, and he's a godly man. Uh, when they come back from, from victory, they deliver the men of Jabesh Gilead, and here in verse 13, they want to kill some of the men that didn't follow after Saul. That that, that Well, they didn't follow after Saul. They, they, uh, they were not supportive of him being king. And Saul says, no one will be executed this day, for today... The Lord has provided deliverance in Israel. Again, I, I'm trying to make the case. Saul is a good guy. We just have this impression of him—what well, he's the bad guy because he's grumpy and he has a frowny face. And David's the good guy. But look, Saul is a good king. He looks like a king. He inspires. He inspires unity. He acts like a king. He leads in the battle from the front. And he gives credit to God. He's godly. What more would they want? What more could we ask for? That's the kind of people we want, isn't it? Saul's a good king. So what makes him so bad? You probably know, right? You probably know. There are two events in Saul's life that we would list as the reasons God takes the kingdom away from him. Or at least one of them is the reason that God lives as the reason that he takes the kingdom away, right? Two of its. He sacrifices even though he's not a priest. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's not a Levite. He has no right to offer a sacrifice. Here in 1 Samuel chapter 13, uh, the Philistines have attacked once again and Saul is concerned that Samuel hasn't arrived at the appropriate time. And so he offers a sacrifice instead of waiting any longer for Samuel. That's the one of it. And that's the one where God says he's going to take the kingdom away and give it to his servant, the man, after his own heart. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 15, the other thing that we often remember about Saul is that when God calls him to go and destroy the Amalekites, he brings back the king and the best of the animals, and Samuel arrives and... Samuel says, well, then what is all all this commotion that I'm hearing? If you've done what God said, why do I hear all this commotion? And and Samuel, of course, reminds him that the Lord delights more in obedience than in sacrifice. So those are the two events. Now, are they really that bad? I I, I know, I know. Don't, Don't misunderstand. Yes, they're wrong. Yes, they're bad. But think through this for a moment. What makes them so bad? What would you have done if you had been Saul? What would you have done? Uh, If you look there in chapter 13, 1 Samuel chapter 13, where uh, Saul is uh, facing the Philistines, Uh, let's see here... Um, down in verse verse 11. So this is when Samuel has arrived. Remember that Saul has waited for Samuel for seven days. He's waited for the appointed time. When Samuel said he was going to be there, Saul has waited this entire time with the enemy in Right? I can see them. They're right there. Not only do I see their army, what else does he see in his own army? Uh, Samuel says, What have you done? And Saul answered, when I saw that the troops were deserting me, and you didn't come within the appointed days, and the Philistines were gathering at Migmas, I thought the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgal, and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. So I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Now I know sometimes, and I've heard this in Bible classes, I've heard this in, from other preachers as well. We make a lot of we make a lot of preaching off of that. I forced myself as though. That's somehow disingenuous of Saul. I don't know. If I try to put myself in Saul's shoes, Samuel hasn't done what he said he was going to do. You didn't arrive when you said you would. And I've waited. And not only have I waited for you to arrive, but my army is disintegrating around me day after day. What happens if the Philistines attack? Can 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 he empathize with where Saul is? What what would you do in his place? All right, think we thought about Saul for just a moment. Now let's think about David. I know this again. This is going to be a little bit mean because David's the good guy, but I'm going to tear him down just a little bit. But but it's all biblical. This is what the Bible says about him, right? Oh, by the way, uh, did you see the? Take one last look at that picture. Isn't he so smug? Saul, he's so smug. Look at this artist's rendition of, of David. Of oh, holy, right? Hallowed, He looks to heaven with a psalm on his voice. Isn't, it, isn't he a good guy? He looks like a good guy, of course. But I'm going to tell you, David David is as bad as Saul or worse. And I mean that, I mean that, I don't know that I'd want to be friends with David. I'm not going to deny that he's a man after God's own heart. But I don't know that he and I would be best friends. David disobeyed God too. You remember when he numbered the people at the end of the book of 2 Samuel, or near the, uh, near the end there, uh, near the end of his reign, and he numbers the people. God actually destroys a number of the men of the army because of this. God punishes David because of this. He lacked faith. He lacked faith, just as Saul did when Saul sacrificed. David lacks faith in God's ability to deliver by fewer by men. And so David numbers the people. Is that any less serious than the things that Saul did? I don't think so. What else? Well, David takes the priest's bread. Jesus uses this as an example later in the New Testament. But you remember this? Saul sacrificed when it was only right for priests to offer the sacrifice. But what does David do? David takes the bread that belonged only to the priest. So here we go. Saul has done two things that are bad, and David's done two things that are bad. Do we sometimes weigh things out like that? We we determine who's a good guy and a bad guy based on how many good things you've done and how many bad things you've done. They're even, aren't they? I've got a few more though. David's a polygamist. What, what do you think about that? There's at least four women that David's attached to. Not only that, but he's also an adulterer and a murderer. Again, I think I'd be much more comfortable with Saul as a church member than David. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Not only is he an adulterer and a murderer, he's a backstabber. He's a backstabber. Uriah is one of his close friends, one of his bodyguards. These men have camped together, they've ate together, they've slept together, they've, they've campaigned together. They're bonded. They're welded together. And when Uriah is out securing David's kingdom, David steals from him. He's not content to steal from him, but then he has him murdered too. He doesn't even have the. He doesn't even. He doesn't even have the the the, 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 the manliness to look the man in the face when he does so. But he sends an henchman out to do it instead. You want a church member like that? What makes Saul so bad, but David so good? David's done a whole lot more bad and a whole lot worse things than Saul did. So, what's the difference? Well, I think the difference is that David understands something about about God that Saul just doesn't. I think think Saul is a godly person. He, He thinks about God, but he doesn't think about God in the same way that David does. That passage there in 1 Samuel chapter 13, this is where God takes the kingdom away from Saul and gives it to David instead. And he says, I've sought out a man after my own heart. That's the difference between Saul and David. David is a man after God's own heart. But again, what does, that, what does that mean? What does that mean? He just he, he gets something about God. He understands something about God that, that David just or that Saul just doesn't. We talked a little bit about this. What would we have done with, um, uh, if we had been in Saul's shoes there and the army is disintegrating around us? We're looking at the enemy, and they seem to be growing stronger day after day. And Samuel, we're waiting for Samuel, we're waiting for Samuel, we're waiting for Samuel. And Samuel hasn't come, and he hasn't come, and he hasn't come. What if the enemy attacks us, and we haven't haven't asked God's favor? You you can see where Saul's thinking, right? What if the enemy comes, and we haven't prepared? We haven't asked God's favor. We know that God is the one who's going to deliver us. Again, I think Saul, he he's thinking about God. God can save us. As a matter of fact, I think only God can save us. But this betrays something in his in his thought processes, his relationship with God. If I don't pay God, God won't come to my aid. Right? If I don't make the sacrifice, then then God won't come and help us. And since Samuel's not here, and I would wait for Samuel, but Samuel has delayed and he's not here on time, what if they come and attack us and so I'm going to have to make the sacrifice because we need God on our side. What do you think? With With your knowledge of who God is, would God have saved Israel if Samuel hadn't arrived and made the sacrifice, would God have saved Israel even if he hadn't been offered a sacrifice? What's that say about Saul's relationship <clears throat> with God? What's that say about a business transaction, isn't it? Isn't that what it looks like? I pay God, and God comes and helps us. If I don't pay God, then God won't come and help us. I need God's help, I pay God, it works out both for us both. What kind of relationship do you have with God? Is it business or is it family? What kind of relationship do you have with God? Is it a business transaction? It's idolatry I know that when we read through the Old Testament God has a lot to say about idolatry he condemns the people for it multiple times eventually they're carried away into captivity because of idolatry and there are some that some of the practices involved in idolatry are, are reprehensible but I don't think that is simply the reason that it is abhorrent to God. I want to go to a prophet in the Old Testament. This is the prophet Micah. This is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. He's a contemporary with uh, uh, Isaiah. This is Micah chapter 6. There's a conversation that goes on between God and Israel. I found that interesting. If you read through the prophets, Isaiah will sometimes do this, where God has a conversation back and forth with his people. There's something like this here in uh, in Micah chapter 6. So this is Micah chapter 6, and this is verse 5. And I'll pick up verse 5 because of what's said here at the end of the verse. So... Uh, God says here at the end, He says, uh, So that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. So God is calling on the people to acknowledge Him. Acknowledge that I'm here to deliver you. I'm here to help you. Acknowledge that I'm the one that saves you. Acknowledge it. And so the people respond in the next verse. And the people say, What should I bring before the Lord? What, what does the Lord want? Does He just want a thank you card? I mean, what, what does God want? What does God want? He wants us to acknowledge Him. When I come to bow before God on high, should I come before Him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 rivers of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the offering of my body for the sin of my soul? Think, of, think about the, here, here are the people. And it's almost a, a sarcastic response on their part. When God says, I want you to acknowledge me. I want you to acknowledge me. And the people say, God, what is it that you really want? Do, do, you, want, do you want better sacrifices? Is that what it is? We're just not giving you good enough sacrifices. You want better stuff? Is that what you want, God? You want better stuff? Uh, uh, maybe you just want more stuff thousands and ten thousands. You just want more of our stuff, God. We've given you and given to you and given to you and you're still not happy. You just want more stuff. What is it, God, that you want? You want my kids. Would you be happy? Really, this is sarcastic, right? Would you be happy, God, if I gave you my firstborn son? Is that what you want? Would that make you happy? Would you finally be content? I'm not going to ask any of you if you feel like this ever, but can, can, you, can you suppose that there might be church-going people that, that display this attitude now? What is it, God? What is it that you want? you want me to church more? You just, you just want more of my money? God's always asking for my money. What is it that you want, God? What is it that you want? And what is it that God says? He's told you what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. God's saying, I don't, I don't want your stuff. I don't need your stuff. Yeah? The Bible does talk about sacrifices. I mean, the whole book of Leviticus about how to sacrifice and when to sacrifice and what to sacrifice. But God's always saying, I don't want your stuff. I got stuff. I got stuff. The cattle on a thousand hills belong to the Lord. The whole world is the Lord's. God said, I got stuff. I don't need your things. What is it that God wants if it's not stuff? He wants them. He wants them. See, I think that's the difference between Saul and David. Saul sees this relationship with God as business, I give to God, God does for me. David sees it differently. It is a personal relationship with God. Isn't it? That's why David can do worse things and more bad things than Saul. And still be a man after God's own heart. There's a difference in the relationship that they share. I've had bosses. There's a actually the, the guy that I used to work for at Hershey. Is uh, a member of the church now at Robinson. Uh, when I when I worked for him in Hershey, uh, <laughs> when I worked for him in Hershey, he did not care that I had other jobs. Some of you married folk out here, if you had another spouse, would your would your current spouse have something to say about that? Maybe. A, Maybe not even say something about it. but they have some way of feeling about it? Yeah, they might feel all kinds of ways about it. Right? My boss couldn't care less. As long as I did the job that he hired me to do while I was on the clock, he didn't care what I did other the rest of the time. But the person I'm attached to, they might have all kinds of ways of feeling. Any of you love your boss? With your heart, soul, strength, and mind? No. no. But are there family members that you do? Are there family members that you love with all your heart? With all your soul? With all of your strength? You love them? You pour yourself into them? Anybody in your family like that? I've got people in my family that I feel that way, to. I've worked for a lot of different people. I've never felt about them that way. I enjoyed their company. A lot of them were good employers. But I don't feel about them like that. I've got children that I feel really attached to. They're important to me. They matter to me. I'm devoted to them. We're, we're with Check, checking off the boxes. What are the boxes? Well, somebody says, Well, I've been baptized, right? You, we go through these, right? We go through this process. I've been baptized and we've gone to church, right? You're here in the morning, and I understand you've got an evening service, and so you're here in the evening too, right? And we've got a gospel meeting going on this week, and so of course everybody's gonna be here for the gospel meeting too, right? We checked off the box, right? We've been baptized and we attend worship service, and we've got a well-mannered family. And you know what that means, right? The family looks good. They're put together well. They don't act a fool when you take them out in public. Right? We know what a well-mannered family looks like. Well-manicured family. We look like good, respectable people. Check and we worship the way that we're supposed to. And we could go through this, right? We could go through the way that we're supposed to worship. Again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I, I believe that the Bible teaches us that there is a pattern for worship. I, I believe that the Bible teaches us that we that we must be baptized. I, I believe that we ought to not forsake coming together. That we need this in-person fellowship. I I believe that. I believe that the Bible teaches that. This business about well manicured families, I'm I'm a little bit sketchy on, but I think we ought to behave ourselves, okay? I think we ought to behave ourselves. But yeah, I can get behind these boxes, right? I I understand that we ought to do these things, and we ought to have the correct doctrine, whatever doctrine it is that we're talking about. We can look at, like, 2 John 9. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide the teaching of Christ does not have God... And we can talk about whether it is uh, marriage, divorce, and remarriage, or the 70 AD doctrine, uh, or premillennialism, or or, uh, uh, Calvinism, or whatever the doctrine is that we are uh, either uh, ascribing to or or refuting. Uh, There is correct doctrine that has to be taught that must be ascribed to. Absolutely. And we can check that off, right? We do that in our personal life we do that collectively as a church. We check off our boxes. We're doing all the right things. We're doing the right stuff. But is it because of a relationship? Are they a result of a relationship? Or is it the relationship Am I serving God because he's my boss? Or because he's my father? Here's a picture of a family. You know how I know it's a family? Sister, Right? Any of you got a picture of friends like this at home? I've got one at home. Uh, I've got a whole, a whole parcel of kids. A whole pile of kids. Uh, from one of the first churches I ever preached for. They had a bunch of children. They had a bunch of young people at the time. And they'll pile it into my house one evening, and I've got a snapshot of them, and I've got this old picture frame that I drug out of a drawer that says family on it. I put all those kids in that picture. book. In a sense, yeah, they're my family. Yeah, I could see that. I know that these people are family because it says so. They told me, right? And look at them. They're all smiling. Family smile. And they're all together, right? And not only that, but their outfits match. They're coordinated. They look good. They're happy. Looks like a family, doesn't it? you know as well as I do that they're just posing? They're just posing. See, I've got a photo at home, too. Maybe you have one like this as well. I've got a photo from a couple years ago when I took my kids with me. We went down to Georgia, northern Georgia, went up to the Lookout Mountain. We camped on top of this rocky place. And Charlie can remind you about all the miseries that he had that night. Right, Charlie? Yep, yep, he's still <laughs> traumatized by it. <laughs> we camped on top of this mountain. There was no shade in the daytime when it was hot, and at night it was rocky. And Stone would poke us in the back, even though we had masks to kind of fold up and sleep on. It was just uncomfortable, and it hurt so bad. I kept telling them that it builds character and that you'll like it after we get back home. We'll reminisce about it. It'll be great. Uh, But I got a photo of us. We went hiking one day, and and I got the camera turned around, and we all huddled in there, and we took a picture together, and it's sitting up on a shelf in my front room. We're all squeezed in together, and we're all smiling We're doing the same things that these people are doing. But there is a big difference between that picture and the picture that I have. We're all smiling in both pictures. And we're all together in both pictures. Somewhat coordinated our collars too, not on purpose, but just because we all wear wear grand collars. We all coordinated difference is that that's business. What I've got is family. And that's the difference between Saul and David. Saul sees God as business partners. I do for you, you do for me. Is that the way that we view God, whether individually or as a church? I do the things that God says to do, so he does the things that he says he's going to do. I give to God, God gives to me. I do for God, God does for me. Or is he your father? What kind of relationship do you have with God? Alright, that's all I've got. I heard the bell, so I understand that we're about, about done. Does anybody have any questions in the last minute or two that I can?